0: Welcome to the EMT Pro Podcast, where we deliver relevant EMS content from the field and the classroom each week. My name is Steve, and with me is my co-host, Dan, and special guest, Holly. Guys, say hi. Hi, Steve. Hi, Steve. Awesome. Everybody's in a good mood. (laughs) Uh, So as a reminder, each episode of this podcast gets you one full hour of CE through our partner, emt-ce.com. So head over there for more information. So guys, today we're talking about some fun stuff. We're talking about helicopter EMS or HEMS or HEMS. Dan, give me your background real quick, uh, when it comes to helicopter EMS and then Holly, really the reason, you know, we brought Holly here is cause
1: she's more the expert. <laughs> right. Uh, I've been with, uh, my agency for around 17 years. I started in 2001. Took about a year off, uh, just to kind of regroup myself and I'm going strong. Hopefully got a couple more years left of me. Awesome.
0: And Holly, welcome. Super happy to have you. Thank you. Um, How have you gotten into EMS, and kind of give us your background and what you're doing now.
2: Oh, okay. Uh, Well, I've been a paramedic for way longer than I've been a nurse. So Mm -hmm. I was a a medic for about 12 years. I worked for Life Flight for four years, and then went to Mm -hmm. nursing school, went to the dark side, Mm -hmm. and then came back about four years ago as a flight nurse.
0: Awesome. And so your full-time gig right now is flight nurse, and you're not doing any medic stuff currently? Nope. Okay. Awesome. Awesome, awesome. Too many CEs. Yeah. That's that's no joke. So what I wanna do with this episode is kinda of touch on a broad uh spectrum of stuff when it comes to everything H E M S related. So obviously flight medic, flight nurse, um with the two of you. But let's talk a little bit about the education requirements to get into that spot because going to paramedic school or going to nursing school simply isn't enough,
1: correct? You have to that's correct. There's additional certifications you need to have. So I had to get my, my FPC, mm-hmm. uh, Flight Paramedic Certified, and I got my CCPC, Critical Care Paramedic Certified, which is not necessary, but it's it's helpful. Mm-hmm. And then all your other stuff, your CLS, NRP, PALS, so on yeah. and so forth.
0: Okay. And so how much extra schooling, for the flight medic side of things, did you feel like it was?
1: Well, I'm not super smart, so it took me a long time because <laughs> it was an online class I took, and okay. I did it over and over again. I passed the first time, mm-hmm. um, but it was the hardest test I ever took. Really? Okay. Right. So how many months do you think you spent studying um, that? It took me a good three months okay. of self-study. Self-study. Yeah. Yeah, through, through an online portion. And then, Holly,
0: obviously, nursing school, RN is two years, but you have a BSN, correct? Mm-hmm. So that's four years total. Of nursing school, and then what other certifications do you have? And what did it take post nursing school to get the flight nurse job?
2: I think the biggest thing post nursing school is experience, mm-hmm. first of all, because I think that's where you learn how to actually be a nurse it's yeah. on the floor in the ICU. Um, there, from there, I was got my certified emergency nurse. Okay, and then as a flight nurse, you have to be a uh, get your certified flight nurse which is similar to the FPC and I didn't study for my test. <laughs> oh, of course you
0: did. Oh yeah. Oh that's test awesome.
2: anxiety. So I just wanted to see how it went. And did you pass first yeah, time? I did. Oh my nice. <laughs> I'm not saying that's I'm not that's recommending not the way that. right,
0: that wouldn't be um, a But you
2: know as you go along in your career and especially mm-hmm. coming to life flight there's a lot of critical care aspects that you don't learn um, Specifically in an ER or specifically on a floor. Mm-hmm. Some of those things are ICU related. And once I came here, though, you get your advanced life support in obstetrics, there's an advanced life support burn class, your neonatal resuscitation stable class. Mm-hmm. There's so many different things to take to enhance your learning. So you can take care of all different types of patients.
0: That's awesome. So over the years, how long have you been in the ICU, or have, or were you in the ICU, and then how much experience do you think it kind of took you to feel a little bit comfortable in that job?
2: First, when I was a medic, I got a chance to work on the trauma team at a level one trauma center, and our team was an ICU nurse and a paramedic, and I feel like I learned so much hmm. from that dynamic because mm-hmm. the nurses were amazing mm-hmm. and really smart, and they loved to help us learn, mm-hmm. and so I learned a bunch doing that as a medic Mm -hmm. and then of course being a flight medic for a while but then once I became a nurse I worked in the ICU uh, for about a year and a half which isn't very long Mm -hmm. but um, it was really busy and I felt like I just got so much experience being night shift lots of autonomy Mm
0: -hmm.
2: (laughs) and um, in the end I came back to flight medicine because I missed being in the field
0: yeah Totally. So that's kind of a general overview of kind of the routes you guys took to get into this profession, because um, I think that's one of the questions we get a lot, um, you know, through our uh, training websites that we right. that we run. Is you know, I want to go, you know, do flight medicine. Like, how do I how do I get into that?
1: It, but the thing is, as a medic, I know that you're you can't just go from paramedic school to a flight medic. You mm-hmm. need that. For our our place, it's five years of yeah. of urban. Right. Medicine. So you've got to go somewhere, get, you got to get your legs on and then for sure get some experience and go.
2: The thing about it is that we know that you're never going to have seen everything because Mm -hmm. I still see things I've never seen before. Every time I think I got it all figured out, Mm -hmm. uh, I get humbled. Um, But we want to hire people with enough experience behind them that they can figure out what to do or they can make it happen. That they have the confidence and the knowledge to
1: critically think.
2: Yeah. To do your critical thinking and Take care of that patient you've never seen before.
0: For sure. Awesome. So let's move into um, some reasons why someone would get flown. I have my own take on it, and I have my own protocols that I operate under where I work. It seems like, for the most part, everybody has semi-similar protocols when it comes to when to fly somebody. It usually depends on your geographic location, and it usually depends on, uh, you know, essentially the... The protocols that you have for things like airway management and for, you know, the more critical ALS type stuff that we do. So does that sound kind
1: of what you guys have seen or do you guys feel like there's a big wide range of stuff or, or. Yeah, it all depends on where you work. I have worked out in, uh, the desert area where you would fly someone that is not critically injured because they don't have an ambulance Mm -hmm. to take the patient with a broken leg to the hospital. Mm Mm-hmm. Then you, I've, I've flown someone from a less than a mile away from a level one trauma center because the patient needed to be extricated, needed blood, and needed a chest tube. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that was good thinking on, on both parts of that because they, the, the BLS people knew they couldn't transport, mm-hmm. so they needed somebody, and that was us. And then the ALS providers on, in the big city knew that we offered blood, we offered chest tubes, and ended up saving life. Holly, what do you think? Is it, has it been your experience that
0: it's really about geographic location?
2: Yeah, we, we, it depends on where you're at, right? Like mm-hmm. you said, um, for your agency, you're really close to mm-hmm. a level two trauma center, so you might not fly as many people. You also have a lot of advanced life support people. Mm-hmm. And a lot of agencies don't outside of the cities. It gets rural really quickly and mm-hmm. some people just have BLS. Some people have one paramedic uh, that they might not want to take out of the system to do an hour long transfer. Um, but one thing that we stress is if you need to fly anybody that um, has something time sensitive, it doesn't have to be trauma, which I think a lot of people associate flying people with trauma. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the traumas. All uh, the but trauma. don't forget STEMIs, strokes, uh, kids, anything time sensitive in that nature is flown i mean we are if we were to drive to a level one trauma center from here it would take two hours Mm -hmm. but to fly from here it would take about 30 minutes Mm -hmm. and so when you think of it in that in that way uh the time the time saving that you can get from flying is it's pretty awesome
0: it is do you guys ever find that uh people are flying patients unnecessarily
1: uh not in this area Mm -hmm. i don't feel like um I think their, their first impression of the patient, they, they think, oh wow, this is, this is pretty bad. They start us, they get us coming, we land. Maybe they're not as bad as they thought they were, but at least they had that forward thinking that there's a possibility there could be internal injuries. Mm-hmm. Let's get this patient over there. Um, when I worked over in the desert area, you mm-hmm. would fly people that sprained your ankle. And, yeah. It's you know. a bummer. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's a big bill. But yeah. then, once again, it's the, it's the location and what the services have to
2: offer. Yeah, and I think, too, working in a level one trauma center, we have trauma guidelines, right? Like if they meet these criteria, they have to be a trauma system entry. And then there's also paramedic discretion, and I have to say, like the paramedic discretion patients that don't meet the criteria, a lot of times end up being really sick, and it's just that gut feeling you have that, whoa, so this this could be really bad." Um, so even though maybe we get the patient to the hospital and we didn't do one single thing for them except get them there quickly, right. that doesn't mean they were flown unnecessarily. So right, sure. that gut feeling you have, that's it's like, "Oh, I don't really want to be in an ambulance with this person for two hours." Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're going to go downhill. That's critical thinking. Yeah, you need to Um, go with it. Go with it because a lot of times those patients end up being really sick Mm -hmm. later on.
0: Let's talk about a normal day for you guys. Uh, What does it look like? How many are on your crew? Um, I know that there's certain health requirements and restrictions that you guys have, which I think is one of the limiting factors for street paramedics. First off, how many are on your crew and then – what are some of these, uh, I know like there's a weight restriction, I think. So yep. Talk to me about that kind of stuff.
1: Our agency, we run pilot, flight nurse, flight paramedic. Uh, two nurses can work together. We don't ever do paramedic, paramedic because we need to have that critical, that critical, uh, care team. And that is going to be your nurse. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the pilots have all these requirements they have to have to even have the job. How mm-hmm. many hours? I can't tell you what they are, but all the stuff that they have to have. So we have, we have three on the crew in part of our company in another state. They'll run an RT and a nurse, but that's okay. just because that's how, how it was before we, we merged. Gotcha. And so we come to work 24 hour shifts for the most part. Um, we come to work. We have an extensive, uh, check of the aircraft, of the equipment stuff we go through. And then, you know, we have training we have to do. It seems like we're always doing some kind of training to fulfill the, the requirements, um, and then we run calls. So what are these weight
0: requirements I keep hearing about? <laughs> and I know that that's going to be a limiting factor for some people, um, yeah.
1: but I'm sure it varies agency to agency. Mm-hmm. Is it 250?
2: I think it's 250 now.
1: 250 with all your gear on. Okay. So how
0: much is your gear weigh, roughly?
2: Probably... It depends on what you have. Okay. I'm like a hamster, so I've always got snacks in my pocket. <laughs> but um, probably about 10 pounds Okay. for helmet, boots. Yeah, and all the Maybe stuff inside. Maybe a little bit more. Yeah. 10 to 12 pounds. So you guys pulls.
0: have
1: a, a flight suit, right? Yeah. Okay. Cool. My wife calls it a zoot suit. A zoot suit? <laughs> it's, not, it's not super attractive.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, and then do you guys have weight restrictions for patients?
1: <sighs> that Big size. Yeah, it's if you can get them in, is it on our one helicopter, you see 135, you can get them in the back. So, I mean, you've got the girth. Okay, so it's really a like a size restriction. And then, right, and I think on the 119, it's four, if they're over 465, it's no go. That's a lot of weight. That's a lot of weight, but that's not out of the possibility Oh, no, possibility not range. at all. Yeah. But the good thing is, is if we have a patient like that, and Holly and I are working together, Mm-hmm. We can do single medical attendant, and I can stay behind. <laughs> you can't the see the middle finger that Holly is extending to Dan right now. <laughs> but you still have to That's rewrite rad. the chart. I still have to with the chart. But.
2: Part of the weight restriction <laughs> is that we have three crew members, and then we're going to have a patient, and we also have fuel on board and right. weight restrictions for that as well. So if we have a really close in-scene call, the pilot figures out every morning what our weight off the ramp is, and that means if a patient were to roll up to the helicopter right now, and we're going to start up and take them, how big can they be? Gotcha. So we have a like we're three hundred pounds off the ramp this morning. So okay. If we fly to a scene call that's fifteen minutes away. Um, that will still increase our weight because mm-hmm. we're burning fuel, which is very heavy. But it might not burn enough if really. we have a four hundred pound patient. Um, so there's other things we can do. We can right. burn off fuel for a while. We usually always stay hot anyway. The pilot can go fly around while we're on scene. Um, we can leave on equipment on scene. We can leave equipment on scene. You know, all kinds of different things. So gotcha. you we know, don't normally. I've never flown single medical attendant.
1: It's awesome. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and I never will. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so twenty-four hour shifts. Twenty-four. Yep. You guys get to sleep if you're not on a call. Yep. Okay. And. Do you guys take off from like an airport or do you have like a base that's kind of in the middle of nowhere or how does it work?
1: Generally they're at airports. Okay. Yep. And at our base we have a jet for fixed wing stuff and then a rotor. And okay. so we will staff whatever, whatever call comes in we'll, we'll do.
0: Okay. So you're not just signing up for working yeah. on a
1: helicopter. You're working on fixed wing as well. Correct. Mm-hmm. Okay. And ground. If, if the weather's down and a transport comes in uh, close by, we can do ground. So if I'm hearing you right, you have two airplanes, a helicopter, and an ambulance. We have one airplane at our base. We have a jet, mm-hmm. and then a uh, a helicopter, and then just we have ambulances, and then we can just do ambulances that uh, we contract with as well. Okay, gotcha. Some right. of our
2: bases, though, are in the middle of a field somewhere in mm-hmm. a rural area. We don't really have, I think. We have a few bases that are close into big cities, but most of them are all in rural locations. Mm-hmm. So we're closer where people might need us.
0: You know, I'm thinking more along the lines of a fire department here or even really a lot of EMS agencies, but do you guys have uh, like a physical ability test or physical
1: uh, like exam that you have to pass every year or anything like that? My hearing, I gotta make sure my hearing's good. Mm-hmm. TB test. Okay. I have no grip strength. They have not caught that yet. Okay. So, we won't tell them. <laughs> edit that part. That out. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, we don't it, have any physical no. um,
2: agility tests that we have to pass. Sounds so like just
0: think. like maybe an occupational medicine appointment and you're good. Kind of? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. So, that's kind of what a typical day might look like or, you know, at least uh, you know, some of the requirements to to do a typical day. Let's talk about what a call looks like and, you know, kind of start to finish um
1: so let's start at the at the 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 call. So yeah. Let's say you're going to a call. Yeah, let's say it's uh, me and I'm yep, like uh, I need a, I need to fly this person cuz we I haven't sense you, you haven't got there yet. So you're looking on your little MDC your little computer and you see that the patient has been in a car wreck, okay? Patient is uh it was high mechanism. You can either put the, us on standby mm-hmm. or you can activate us. Okay. Before you even get there. So if like if the patient it says the patient's unconscious, It might just behoove you to activate us because you can always cancel us. Right. So we go, we get all ready, we get our stuff together for on standby. Mm -hmm. We'll get our stuff together. We'll go out, we'll do a walk around on the helicopter, make sure everything's good and we'll just wait. And so you've contacted your dispatch. Your dispatch has contacted our dispatch, which is, which is in another state. Okay. But it's just a phone call. Okay. And then they're, they're the one that dispatch us. And so once we're activated.
0: What does that sound like? Is it a phone call that you guys get? Yep. Or is it like tones?
1: Phone call. Okay.
2: Yep. And all they say is standby scene call. Yep. Okay. And the city. Yep. They, they don't tell us what it is. We're not allowed to know what calls we go on.
1: And the reason for that is that puts extra pressure. Yeah. Especially on the pilot. Let's say it's a pediatric trauma. Right. You know, maybe he's got a kid at home and, you know, Right. he wants to get there at all costs. So yeah. if he doesn't know, that's all, that's better. Yeah.
0: Okay. Okay, keep going. So. So you've activated us. I've activated you. Right. We are. Now, you said I'm, I put you on standby. Standby. So that, Is that means the same thing? we get
1: all of our stuff together. Okay. We're out the helicopter. Now. What he about can, your, what about your pilot?
0: What's he or he, she
1: doing? He's done his walk around. He's all set and ready to go. We're okay. But he's down. not we're like just starting the
0: engines up or anything like that. Nope.
1: Okay. So we're waiting. You activate us. Then he goes. He starts it up. It's probably a four to five minute process to get that from. You know, not running to lift off. Mm-hmm. Because there's all these checks you have to go through. It's not, not like an ambulance where you can just start it up and start driving. It's, right. it takes a little bit. And then, uh, we have Plus coordinates. Tower
2: clearance. Tower so. clearance,
1: right. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, we're in route, we're going, and then I will call you on the radio to get LZ instructions. Okay. And so you'll, you'll give me, where the LZ is going to be, what overhead obstructions are, what it looks like, where's the wind, any mm-hmm. anything that I need to know that might be a potential danger to the rotor staff.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: and then we land. We will get our airway bag and our med bag, get in the back of the ambulance or wherever you may be. If you guys got everything dialed in, there's no airway issues. We're in there for two to three minutes tops, and then we're out. Mm-hmm. And we uh, load the patient and off to the hospital. Awesome. So... What's the furthest you guys
0: can travel, generally speaking, if you have a full tank of gas? Or I'm sorry, we just Usually <laughs> keep
2: about two hours of fuel on. So hour away and okay. an hour back. We have to have a certain amount of reserve for fuel on board, mm-hmm. but you know, we typically, I don't know, we can go anywhere from a five minute call to an hour call away.
1: Okay. An hour where we are, which generally super, super quick and then just quick to the hospital. There's some places that have an hour leg where they have to transport to, so gotcha. we're pretty fortunate. Gotcha.
0: Um, so then, okay, so I guess obviously if you're working 24-hour shifts, you guys are running night calls as well. Oh, yeah. um, and so how does that change what you guys are doing or maybe does it heighten anything that's going on with the call? Like what what are your typical feelings about night calls and then – what does that change as far as your operations go?
1: Our, uh, what is it? The, the ceiling? what do
2: they call that? Ceilings. <laughs> <laughs> what the no, So is in the daytime, our minimums are minimums, that's it. a thousand foot ceiling and three okay. miles of visibility. And at night, obviously, it's still a thousand feet for the ceiling, but we have to have five miles of visibility. Okay. And then we get a little bit extra time for our liftoff to get out there, do our walk around. Um, and really, any time we're around the helicopter, it's heightened. Mm-hmm. It, daytime or nighttime, you can never let your guard down because it's totally. a dangerous operation. But um, at night, it's I don't know, kind of the same. We wear night vision goggles, so okay. that takes a little bit of time to prepare. Usually we prepare them um, before we get the call, mm-hmm. <laughs> so they're ready to go, all dialed in, and it's pretty easy just to throw your helmet on and...
0: I don't know how you could ever just be willy nilly around one of these aircrafts. They're so loud; they are. So s- loud. They command your attention, whether or not you're awake or not. Like right. you're going to wake up. Like it.
2: It commands your attention, but it's really easy to get distracted by all the noise. Mm. And instead of having the normal situational awareness that you would, because you can hear and see things, you're kind of tunnel visioned into this giant machine, mm-hmm. and it's really easy to make mistakes. Mm. And that's why when we have the EMS crews come in, we all come in as a group. Totally. And we all leave as a group so we can keep track of everybody. It's very easy to get distracted and just step backwards a few steps. And then you're really close to the tail rotor. Right. Or maybe you're in a dangerous part of the rotor disc. So even though it does command your attention, I feel like it's, it's easy for people to get so distracted. Easy.
1: That's why everything I do is routine. I'm a very routine guy when it comes to that mm-hmm. because if something is off my routine then it it sparks something up here yeah. and so I stop. When I get out of that out of the the helicopter, I actually stop to think, okay, which way is the tail rotor? Hmm. Physically every single time. So
0: interesting. I like that though. I mean, that's kind of how we operate on the fire ground and right. you know, mm-hmm. in back of ambulances, we have our routines, we do it every single time and mm-hmm. then when something's off, it really peaks our interest. Awesome. You have a pilot and then you have a crew of two, yep. or not a crew of two, but, you know, two medical providers. Mm-hmm. So what does it look like as far as communication between you and the pilot goes? Is there much? Is there very little? There is
1: because we are part of the flight crew. We have to, you know, our eyes are always outside when we're not taking care of the patient. Um, we're making sure everything's going okay on the inside. We assist him if there's any type of a in-flight emergency, um, For me, the medical stuff is so much easier than all the aviation and safety stuff Mm -hmm. because there's so much more to think about. And, you know, you you only do it a few times a week as opposed to, like, you work in an ambulance and you're going on 20 calls a day. Right. So, Holly? Uh,
2: One thing we start the morning out with is a safety brief. And so every morning, probably within the first 30 minutes of our shift, we sit down with the pilot and we talk extensively about... Weather, where we can go, how much fuel we have, what's the moon going to be like tonight? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, if there's anything that we need to go over on the aircraft, like maybe we have a different aircraft today, and I'm not comfortable um, unplugging the start cart or something like that. That's my time to tell the what's pilot. The start cart? Sometimes when we start up, we have a the battery external battery plugged in. Oh, okay. And you ha- part of your duties is to unplug it, shut the door. Take it over. Mm-hmm. And so if that's something I'm not comfortable with. That's my time to take ownership of that and talk to the pilot and get everything squared away for the day. Mm-hmm. We talk about um, a safety topic every day. And it could just be that there's a lot of birds in the area. Or it's Saturday and there's a ton of people flying today.
0: Okay.
2: Um, what else is covered in the safety brief? <laughs> it depends on who does it, but right. it's pretty extensive. Some are really
1: long yeah. and some are really short. <laughs>
2: yeah. It takes quite a while. And so that kind of opens up the communication there, especially if it's a new pilot and you haven't worked together as a crew. Uh,
1: new flight crew.
2: New flight crew. Yeah.
0: Do you guys are you guys helping him navigate, him or her navigate where you're going, or is it like
1: it's all in GPS. Okay. And so we'll give them the numbers and then uh we're always looking like if we're going to sink hall, we're we're eyeballing like where are the where are the lights, mm-hmm. emergency lights. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about I
0: know that there's
1: certain requirements that you guys have
0: throughout the day on what, when you, what you can fly in and what you can't fly in, right? Um, what are those things called, and what are kind of the limitations that you guys have as far as the weather goes?
1: This is where Holly does a really good job. Go ahead. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, it depends on what aircraft you have. Some okay. aircraft are VFR, which is visual flight rules, mm-hmm. and that means that you have to be able to see where you're going and you have to be able to see the ground, okay. basically. And that way, if there was an in-flight emergency and you had to land quickly, you have visual reference of where you're going. Um, At night, if you're VFR, that's where the night vision goggles come in because it does give you a visual reference to a horizon or somewhere, like a ground lights or something like that. Um, If you have an IFR aircraft, which is instrument flight rules, then you can fly in the clouds. Mm -hmm. You don't necessarily have to see where you're going. And there are limitations to that too. You have to have radar navigation or GPS and land at an approved place, just like an airplane. Okay. So you're basically flying with instruments like an airplane, right? And the towers controlling where you go, they're telling you what to do, and as you come in for your landing, you're on um, a GPS approach. Okay, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can't fly in icing conditions ever. So if it's snowing, that's probably okay. But we can't fly through clouds above the freezing level. Okay. Does that make sense? So like mm-hmm. if the freezing level is at 3,000 feet, we can't fly into the clouds at 4,000 feet. Gotcha. So there are limitations there because we don't want ice to accumulate on the rotor desk. That would not be good.
0: Yeah, that'd that be a would bad be. We don't
2: have, you know, those fancy rotor wires right. or whatever they're know. called. Um, so that's limitations for our company, really. And we have... A really good mix of IFR and VFR aircraft, depending on most, depending on the location of the aircraft, mm-hmm. um, it's better to have IFR capabilities for sure versus VFR.
1: And I think that's one of the problems that the ground crew they don't understand. They where they are, they look up and they see blue sky, right? Where we are, we may be in a fog bank, and so we can't lift, and so we're not trying to get out of the call. It's just we can't, we can't. Take off. Yeah, you can't do it safely. So,
2: and the FAA regulates it pretty heavily because Hems has a
1: high death sketchy rate. <laughs> past. It does. Yeah.
2: Um, if there are no limitations, then people get really into revenue and taking the flight, and people right. feel pressured. Right. But taking that, making that objective, which is you have to have a certain ceiling and you have to have a certain visibility, so it really helps. What are the ceiling
0: be and them. visibility limits?
2: 1,000 feet to take off for okay. VFR, okay. and during the day is three miles of visibility.
0: And so that's basically walking out and seeing roughly three miles left and right of your
2: base. Yeah, and the pilots, okay. you know, we have to go off of radar reporting and things like that, but if, the, if it's reporting, great, and the pilot walks outside, we all have these... Things we look at, like oh, I can't see that hill over there. That's five miles away. Right. Oh, okay. That's a good visual clue that yeah. uh, we're below minimums um, because at night we need five miles of visibility.
1: And if one of us doesn't want to, doesn't feel comfortable, mm-hmm. it takes one person to say no, and we don't do it. Okay. So three to go, one to say no. And,
2: and actually, straight. it's five to go now because uh, we have a, in our control center we have an OCC that can take on the call MMO, as well. Yeah. Nurse. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's right. But let's say when a call comes in, the pilot's the only person that can say yes based on weather only. Because, again, we don't know what call we're going on. Mm -hmm. So they look at the weather. Can we safely make it from point A to point B? And then we agree, yep, let's go. But at any time, Dan's right, we can say, I don't like this. I think the weather's going down. We need to turn back. and. There's usually a discussion, but no question. We'll, we'll turn back. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do have an operation control person in our comm center. And if they can see something we can't or they don't like the way the can. weather looks, they can also turn down the call.
1: Gotcha. So
2: it's kind of nice to have the,
1: it is, mama I remember, bear looking for us. Yeah. Totally. I remember when I first started, uh, we still had some Vietnam era pilots. Mm-hmm. Those dudes, would, and we had no MEGs at that time. Anything, and it's yeah. like I would just close my eyes and just, oh, my gosh, I hope we make it. I hope we make it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I can't imagine flying without MEGs.
1: Oh, my gosh, me either. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, okay, so let's
0: talk about uh, getting to the landing. So you guys are have been called to a scene, mm-hmm. and you guys need to land. What What are some best practices that you love to see from ground crews, that help with a good uh, landing zone, with you know, good communications. Uh, so there's sometimes.
1: I mean, we would love to have a hundred by hundred, right? Yeah, just nice flat surface. Hundred by hundred square, right? Okay, right. You know, it's not a field where you got corn sticking up six feet. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but sometimes that can't happen. Sometimes we're landing just a small spot in the middle of a tree, in the middle of the trees, and we're looking to, as we're coming in, sometimes the coordinates are off a little bit. If you see us, just radio us and say, hey, I got you at my 12 o'clock. Or okay. You're at my 12 o'clock. And then that way we can kind of zero in on where you are, and then we can see your lights. We don't want you shining stuff at us, but we can see your lights, and I'll, let, I'll give you a verbal that we see you. And then we'll do a, a pass-through. We'll go around, check out the LZ. The and if the pilot doesn't like it for some reason, because we can see a lot more up above mm-hmm. than you guys can see below, we can maybe choose an, an alternate Mm -hmm. Which isn't what we like to do, but just for safety wise, we'll, we'll sometimes do that. Yeah. And then, uh, obviously keep, keep the people away because when we land, there's a lot of rotor wash. And then I'll get out and I'll, I'll look for a tail rotor guard. The reason I want a tail rotor guard is because the pilot's sitting there hot. He's running hot. And so that tail rotor is spinning and he can't see anything behind him. If I can put someone at his 10 or 2 that's looking at him and the tail rotor and can let him know if someone's coming in, keep people away, that's ideal. So that's that's my job as I get out. Now I'll let Holly go to the, the ambulance. I'll find someone that will meet up with her. Mm-hmm. Awesome. What do you got to add to that?
2: Um, well, one thing to add is that if we do choose an alternate LZ, don't it's no yeah, it's not a disrespect, shot, don't yet. take it personal. Um, most of the time people do a really good job finding mm-hmm. a good LZ, but... A lot of times, maybe you don't have that extra person mm-hmm. to go and hunt down busy. the LZ. Yeah. Some places have designated places. Like, we always go to the football field. That's right. It's one town. But some people don't. Or you're out in a rural area, and it's just really hard to drive around looking for an LZ. So if you ever need help with that, just radio your helicopter crew and say, we can't find a good LZ can you see something mm-hmm. or something
1: okay. like that? And if if you don't have it set up, we can we'll, we'll, we'll land f-
2: ourselves, yeah.
1: Yeah, and or we'll hover and wait for you guys to get it done. Mm-hmm.
2: We would much rather be hovering and waiting for you yep. than have you on the ground waiting for us. So no okay. pressure, just hovering. It's yeah. okay. <laughs> yep,
1: we're totally good. Yeah, mm-hmm. we're, we're flying. Just probably so talking it's super about
2: cool. dinner. Anyways. Yeah,
0: right. <laughs> you guys are doing what you want to do. Right on.
2: Um, the other thing about LZs is. Um, let us know when you have us in sight because it's really hard to find you. Even if we have coordinates, it's actually really hard to find the that, little, that little <laughs> Right, yeah, exactly. You know, unless it's at night and then we can see you right. guys from forever away. Mm-hmm. Um, just a cone with a flashlight, mm-hmm. we can see that forever under night vision. Oh, wow. It's like, yeah, it, it lights it's up. It's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, just have a good LZ. Good communication is really important. If for some reason communication fails, which it does, Um, will still land, Mm -hmm. but...
1: uh, The radios are a a challenge. They're a challenge for me. You know, you get... Because you're you're calling someone in another state and telling them what the radio frequencies are, and maybe something gets lost in translation. And if I don't know, like, this particular fire department uses this TAC channel... Mm -hmm. I'm back there just... And we use
2: 800 VHF, UHF. Yep. Um, in our area, we use all three radio frequencies. And okay. so there's hundreds Yeah, yep. to know, and it gets a little bit... tough.
0: Craziness. So, okay. So 100 by 100 square is what you're looking for, ideally. Um, and then how do you like those marked off? Or what's your
1: preference, I guess? Something that doesn't blow away. Okay. So would they generally have these little beacons. Mm-hmm. There's beacons or cones... Something like that. Okay. If
2: you're going to use flares, just know that we will blow them away. Yep. So we have caught many a field on fire uh, <laughs> oh, with, no. the, with the flares. But if it's on the road and you know that it's going to blow away somewhere safely, mm-hmm. that's okay. But as the rotor wash is at full power coming in, that's yeah. like 150 miles an hour. Yeah. We blow over porta-potties. Yeah. All kinds of nice. stuff. So just know that whatever you've set up is probably going to blow over and make sure it goes to a safe location.
1: So, gotcha. and if you see something we don't see, we're doing our approach, mm-hmm. just call us off. Okay. Maybe, what maybe would that you sound like for abort. radio traffic. Abort. abort. And right. then he will or she will do And that it.
2: doesn't mean we're gonna go home.
1: No. Right. It just means we're gonna we'll stop find someplace what we're else. doing. Yeah. Find a new
2: and re some communication.
1: Okay.
0: And then what about um what about patients you can't take? Are there any types of patients that you guys basically can't have in the back of a helicopter? We already kind of talked about uh, weight limitations but what about
1: so if they're combative we will most likely take their airway we, okay. we can't take a combative patient in the aircraft safety wise mm-hmm. uh tell me about active birth i mean if if there's something coming out we're not taking it okay so we're gonna no, we'll, we'll take care if we're having a baby we're gonna have
2: a baby first right so. and then go and
0: then go okay what else Can you take cardiac arrest patients? Yeah. Okay. And are you guys doing compressions, or do you Mm -hmm. guys have a... Doing compressions.
2: We'll take, if someone's got a Lucas device, or some other unnamed CPR device. Right, yeah. (laughs) um, We'll take it with us. Uh Uh-huh. But we don't carry those on the helicopter. No. No. So we'll either do CPR. And it depends on, is this... We're doing CPR on scene. Should we be transporting this patient? Right. Or not? You know, and if, if... we deem yes, then yeah, we'll do. You guys going to have a discussion
1: here. with the right, ground to... we'll see what your, your protocols are because I know where our, the fire department I work for is 30 minutes. Okay. We'll run a call for 30 minutes, of, a cardiac arrest before we transport, mm-hmm. and so we'll see where you are on that and how we're trending, gotcha. and then have a discussion with you guys.
2: The um, let's see, other patients we couldn't take, we can take law enforcement, but they can't have around in the chamber, so we can take their them with their weapons. But they have to unchamber that round. We cannot take, they can't take their mace, um, anything aerosolized like that. Um, yeah, that could be a bad day. But other than that, there's really few.
1: Very few we can't take.
2: That we can't take, yeah. Awesome. If for some reason they're a weight restriction mm-hmm. and I don't feel comfortable as a single medical attendant, mm-hmm. maybe because I'm really sick and I'm going to be really busy. We can always take that person by ground. We can always offer that too mm-hmm. to go with the ground crew. Um,
1: when we do that, sometimes we'll go into an area, and the weather was great coming in, but we can't get out. Yeah, and so we'll hop in the back of that ambulance and mm-hmm. off we go with with you guys.
0: Interesting. That's that's a lot of information, man. Uh, you guys, you guys are you're you're killing it. It's doing really good stuff. Um, I think a lot of people are going to be um, getting a lot of questions answered from this. So. Um, what I want to do is go over a call real quick with you guys okay. and then uh, kind of throw some questions at you that I have just as, you know, my own personal interest. And then um, I just want to get your guys' take on it. So the station I'm at covers a large portion of a rural uh, part of our county. Um, and so uh, just for some background, uh, I work for a fire department that transports, and we have uh, a system that runs um, dedicated ambulance and EMS crew, uh Ambulance and fire crews, but everybody is trained um, to about 50% are EMTs and the other 50% are medics. Dispatched with a three-person crew on an ambulance to a motorcycle wreck um, up on, uh, a, I mean, they, it's called a mountain, so it, it, it's a pretty big, you know, hill. I don't really consider it a massive mountain, but uh, it's got some tight roads and, you know, motorcyclists love to take their bikes up there and, you know, it's pretty challenging and once you get to the top, there's this massive parking lot and a bunch of trails that you can take to go down the various sides of this hill. Um, so it attracts a lot of people, a lot of people for, you know, recreational purposes and things like that too. So we get dispatched for a motorcycle wreck and, uh, the rural district sends a QRT out there and about, they get there in about 20 minutes and we're about 10 minutes behind them. So, uh, they radio to us that, Hey, we think we should fly this patient. He's, a uh, you know, some 20 year old kid who, uh, basically took some, uh, trauma to the chest from the handlebars of his motorcycle, kind of dumped it into a ditch, uh, taking a corner too quick. So he's short of breath, feeling anxious. They want to fly him. It's like, yeah, absolutely. Um, so we, we launch you guys. I believe it was your agency that showed up and, uh, we get, um, we get on scene and we confirm, yep, this kid is, is, is going to need some help. So. We get to we get him in the back of our rig and we're communicating with you guys because um, by this time you guys are in the air and asking for. I think the uh, the you guys had wanted to know where we're landing um, and we had told you we're going to go to the top of this hill, big parking lot. We're going to get everyone out of there and then we're going to radio to you once the LZ is ready. It's probably eleven or twelve o'clock at night, so it's pitch black and we get to the top of this hill and it took us like five minutes, even with uh, county sheriff's help to get everybody out of there and get all the cars out of there. Um, and luckily we were able to do so. There wasn't a bunch of cars intermixed in the parking lot, so we actually got to empty this thing and have it all to ourselves. And I would say it probably could hold 30 vehicles maybe. So it's not small but, not, you know, not massive. We clear out this this space, and then um, we get this patient, um, kind of the point we have to we decompress his chest um, on the left side, he gets some relief with that, but we're also, I mean, poor kid. I mean, he's you know mid twenties. He just watches us put a needle into his right. chest and is freaking out. Right, like uh, he gets some relief with that, but he's still like super freaked out. So we're we're working on giving him some ativan, and I have to get out of the back of the ambulance um, to go help you guys uh, or to go you know basically say hey LZ set up and you know do all the radio comms and not interrupt the other two people who are uh, managing the patient. I guess one of my first questions for you guys is, so I set up this 100 by 100 uh, LZ, and I'm pretty proud of this thing, right? Like, I know <laughs> what the textbook says, <laughs> yeah. and I put um, one of those heavy-weighted pucks that have the lights on it, uh-huh. you know, on each corner, and then I put a fifth one to show you where the wind was coming from, right? You know, the wind direction. Wow. Yeah, yeah, the so I was like, shaver. oh, man, this is this is going to be a good one. And then I realized, oh, crap, the wind is coming directly from the one spot in this parking lot, that has like a row of like twenty massive trees, and so the landing is going to have to be pretty steep, like to the point where like I'm I'm kind of picturing in my head or drawing this. Oh, there, you know, there's a helicopter drawing this line of uh, you guys landing, but like you guys are coming in, and I'm like, ah, uh, you know, there's a bunch of trees. You guys can obviously see the trees, right? Like right. it's not like yep they're hidden, right? How much communication do you want about the hazards I'm seeing? I guess, is, is the question, right? Do you want to know that coming in, big patch of trees, you know, if there yes. was telephone lines or stuff like that? Absolutely. Absolutely. All okay. of it.
2: If it's 200-foot tall trees to the north that are really obvious, mm-hmm. we still want you to say that.
0: Okay, awesome. Yes. That really, really helps. Yep. I definitely didn't say that. <laughs> um, I was watching you guys come in and like, oh, okay, yeah, they obviously see them because he, he came in and then he kind of flattened his approach and then just dropped straight down. Right. It was, it was pretty sick. Um, the pilot did a pretty cool maneuver and holy crap it was so loud it was so so loud we don't have any ear pro no um you know we have like little you know foam ear protection things but that doesn't do enough and it was incredibly loud so okay that answers so my first the question.
2: these yep. wires, everything that looks obvious to you is not obvious. To not us. at all. I and see. it also helps us find you. If mm-hmm. we're looking for that big bank of trees to the north, we mm-hmm. kind of know where you're at now. Yeah. And then also it helps the pilot as we do our our high recon mm-hmm. to know which way they're going to come in for their approach. And we always want to come into the wind.
1: Yes. So yep. We'll come <clears throat> into the wind,
2: and maybe then at the last minute they'll maneuver mm-hmm. the helicopter so it's closer to. The patient for loading. Mm-hmm. But yeah, all of those things we want to know.
0: So the fifth cone, if I remember the wind, you're, you're put, you're placing a fifth cone to signal where the wind is coming from. Right? Yeah. In theory. Not a lot of people do that. I mean, that's, yeah.
2: that's overachiever set. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So maybe that's Also, all... <laughs> one other thing to note <laughs> yeah. is that, um, we can't see LEDs under the night vision goggles. So if uh-huh. you have LED okay. blinkers. They're all LED blinkers. Yeah. Um, like there's one set of towers in our area mm-hmm. and like one tower is all LED, which is completely invisible oh under no. the night vision. Did not
0: know. So that.
2: if your blinkers are are they're not definitely LEDs, yeah. The LED, yeah. There's one or two frequencies that we can see under under there's night vision, sure. but for the most part we can't see LEDs. So if Would you like us <laughs> to tell
1: you that they're LEDs? Would that help?
2: I, we just kind of assume yeah. everybody has LEDs. And he's now.
1: peeking out, you know, he'll peek yeah, out underneath kind of his Yeah, look at it. Okay.
2: And probably they saw your flashing lights for you. Right, your, right.
1: Yeah, they definitely with your saw reds
2: those too.
0: Well, and a lot of those are turning into LEDs now too.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Mm,
2: yeah, one right. job.
0: I know, right. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so then I met up, you know, I, you, the helicopter lands, um, they shut down everything and then the two guys hop out. Uh, it was a medic came and meet, uh, greeted me first and he said, hey, Let's talk about what you got. And we walked back to the rig and I was telling him basically everything we'd done, vital signs, uh, you know, needle decompression. And at that point, after we told him what we had, he went back, grabbed some more gear with the nurse and said, I think we're going to do everything here before we we get going. And we're going to do, he wanted to do a chest tube and he wanted to innovate prior to uh, taking off. And so that information got relayed to the, Pilot, because then the pilot shut everything down, um, and it was completely silent. It was really strange I love it when that happens. It was really strange <laughs> to go from, you know, the loudest noise you've ever heard to right just silence on top of a hill. It was it was actually kind of peaceful. It was like, oh, I can hear you talk. Hey, how are you doing? Okay, yeah, hey, good, man. Is that pretty typical? The, the medic comes out first. Or no, is, no, it, it, it's crew by crew. Isn't it's just who's ever comfortable or who's ever's up.
2: It's really who needs the tube. <laughs> <laughs> okay i nice. like i need a tube today uh i'm going to be on airway okay and that airway person is the one that'll go in the side of the ambulance up by the patient's head okay and then the other person will come in by the feet okay to do their secondary mm-hmm. or their primary assessment and that's kind of how we do it as a crew right it doesn't really matter for the nurse or the medic it, you know
0: okay so you guys are both doing airway management correct mm-hmm. okay Yep. what i and this was just more of an observation. The thing that I loved the most about that call was watching the medic and the nurse interact with one another. They bounced every idea that they had off of the other person, and they said, hey, you know, I'm going to make up a name here, but Joe, this is what I'm thinking. I've got this, this, and this. I want to do a chest tube here, and here's my landmarks. And they just, not only did they verbalize everything they were thinking, but they also got confirmation or a question from the person who was listening to it. Um, and I just... It just seemed like it was such a good flow of, uh, really, teamwork to to watch that whole thing play out. Um, we
1: really tried to stress the closed loop.
0: Yeah, definitely closed we, loop. It was not open loop at all. Um, everything that got said was, you know, addressed um, with a positive or a question, um, and then they and, went And forward. we usually
1: try to involve the ground crews with that because yeah. you've been with the patient much longer than we have, mm-hmm. yeah. and we're not there to take over your patient. We're there as an additional crew member or team member.
0: I mean, but from a ground perspective, I'm I'm 100 okay. Just hey, we made the call. <laughs> we did the we did the cool thing we wanted to do. You know, like we gotta get we gotta get back in right. service. Like, let's give this thing over to you, right? <laughs> you know, it's like. <clears throat> but uh, I'm just kidding. But I think the the thing that I really appreciated was, like you said, they did involve us and they did say, "Tell me about the the decompression. You know, what were what were your guys' assigns and what were your protocols for um, you know performing one?" Um, and so. You know, we had to basically walk them through the definition of uh, tension pneumo is for us and right. wh- what we saw to get us to that point to perform the procedure. Um, and then, you know, we walked through the vital signs we had. And then from that point, you know, we're, we're kind of all enamored because we don't get to see a chest tube get put in every day. Right. So we're watching that happen. And then we're also voicing, you know, like every, I think it was every three minutes, we were taking a new set of vitals. And so we were throwing those out as they became available. We as a crew... Helped load the patient in and the the medic and the nurse were very, very good about um, letting us know what to expect. Um, And then the part that was honestly a little bit, a little freaky in the whole thing was uh, the heat. Coming off of the back
1: of uh, the helicopter. So you were doing a rear load. We were doing a rear load and, and he was hot by that time? Yes. Oh, it's horrible. Yeah. yeah and it was like, oh man. Is
2: like right in your face and yep. it's about 400 degrees or yeah. something. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it was like, shoot, if I looked up, I could actually like probably get a burn. Yeah. Like, and I try to, like, like you said, warn the people what's mm-hmm. going to happen out there, how loud it's going to be, how hot it's going to be, how smelly it's going to be. To his credit, he warned us, but there was nothing that was going to
0: prepare us for. Right? Hey, you're going to be looking at like 400 degree air for a couple seconds, and then you're going to, you know, duck even lower, kind of a thing. Or yeah. walk me through what it looks like to load a patient up from the various entrances to a, uh, a helicopter, because I think the only way I've ever done it, unless it was um, like a pub ed event, right. is from 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 the rear, like a rear entry. But right. I've never had uh, a scene side. patient go into the side.
1: Okay, and so. If Holly and I are working together, mm-hmm. we'll go in, we'll do a quick assessment. If there's nothing needs to be done, I'll say, Holly, go back and prep the helicopter if you would. So she'll go back, she'll open the door, whether it's the back door, and then she'll undo the, the, the buckles and open up the blanket. We have a life blanket back there. And so she gets everything prepped. If it's a side door, she opens the side door, does the same thing. So we'll go with the rear first, and that's when I, I'll warn the people on how, how loud it is, how smelly it is, how noisy it is. And then we'll give the instructions before we leave. And then I'll take a minimum of four people, and I'll generally be, be guiding them uh, super slow because if you're on an uneven terrain, the last thing we want to do is mm-hmm. drop the patient. Right. And so we'll go, and Holly will give me a thumbs up. Holly will give me a thumbs up because we want to want to make sure that they know we're coming, and we're coming from the right angle. We need to be at the, you know, we don't want to come from the back side. We don't want to come from the front. It's got to be mm-hmm. from the sides. Mm-hmm. And generally it's from the 9 o'clock side loading on the side on the side load we're doing a nine o'clock if we're loading in the rear we're coming in from the nine o'clock as well okay and so we come in we'll do a nice slow load if you're if they're on the backboard it's much easier because then we can just slide it onto the onto the gurney mm-hmm. if they're not on the backboard um we'll just take like you know their their sheet like this what we did the other night just sheet and then we'll just we'll just yard them in mm-hmm. it's a little a little more aggressive but it works it works well yeah we want to make sure they're flat, especially on the flat load because or the back load, mm-hmm. because there's not a lot of clearance. And if they're intubated, we'll make sure we disconnect the BVM so we don't lose that tube as we're doing that that quick load. Holly, what else you got on that?
2: Uh, just one thing to remember is just safety under the rotor disk, mm-hmm. like no hats, nothing yeah. that can fly off. And if something does fly off, don't chase it mm-hmm. because right. it's going to go to the tail rotor. Um, and then we always stand outside the rotor desk and wait for the pilot to invite us in. Like, you never approach an aircraft without the pilot's okay. And yeah. that's so they know yeah, where there, you're going. There. And it's always 9 and 3, never 12 o'clock.
0: And what's it going to look like for it's the pilot to welcome you in? And what's it going to look like for the pilot to say? Just
2: a thumbs up or a flashlight. Yep.
0: Okay. Um, just if just they say, don't want you approaching for whatever reason, what are they going to do? Nothing. They're or just going to leave you, you. see or give thing. you the or hand. Or give yeah. you a hand, yeah. okay. okay.
2: Like the stop. The Austin Powers. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> right. We'll see that at the hospital quite a bit where the security guys will want to come in when we're still either shutting down or mm-hmm. we're not ready for them to come in. And we'll have to stop them because when you start shutting that down, the rotor discs start to flop and they start to go down a little bit. Mm-hmm.
2: And that's a really dangerous place to be. Yeah. If you can touch the helicopter, you're okay. Or you need to be outside the rotor disc. But okay. any any other area is, a, is pretty dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, I think
1: I think that's pretty I think
0: good. Yeah. I guess the absolute last question I have for you guys um, is: What does chart writing look like in the helicopter world versus ground world? Is it it's the worst thing
1: in the world? It's the worst
2: thing. <laughs> <laughs> it takes forever.
1: When I first started, it was amazing because the nurses weren't nice, mm-hmm. but they always wanted to chart. They didn't want to innovate, but they always <laughs> wanted to chart.
2: That was fine. Great. I yeah. go
1: sit underneath the stairs and let them chart. Yeah. But now it's a team effort. We're mm-hmm. the team part. And uh, I'm not a real good charter. So you guys are
0: doing a chart together? Correct. You're yes. co authoring a chart. I'll yep. usually start a Single the bottom,
1: chart? One chart. Okay. I'll just start the bottom. She'll start the top because she's much smarter than I am. And then right. we meet in the middle. And then I say, make it look good.
2: <laughs> one thing that is different uh-huh. than in the EMS world is that we're not allowed to chart while we fly.
0: Okay. Because
2: we need to have our eyes outside looking for aircraft or other hazards, birds. Um, so we're not allowed to chart unless we're back at base.
0: But typically speaking, how much, how much more time do you spend on a ALS, you know, ambulance chart than you do? Or you know what I'm trying to say? Yes. How much more time is spent on a a helicopter
1: chart versus a ambulance chart? I could write an ambulance chart in five minutes. (laughs) <laughs> maybe that's why I was on a PIP, I don't know. Right, yes. <laughs> uh a good chart for um, if it's just a scene call, it's probably forty-five minutes or so. Mm-hmm. If it's a critical care call, you know, we got ECMO, you got all these drips and such to do, it could go up to two hours.
2: Wow. Oh yeah. Some of the interfacility calls are take a long time. Especially if they're any kind of vasoactive drip, we have to do five minute vitals and we're always titrating something or mm-hmm. changing the vent. Um, and all that has to be documented. And it's all
0: got to be documented. Wow. Awesome. Well, I feel like we touched on a ton of information, but I feel like it's going to answer a lot of questions that people have had, that they've come to us with, so I'm hopeful that uh, this will be not only a good podcast to listen to for information about you know what helicopter EMS is, uh, but also... Maybe pique some interest in, you know, getting more people involved in it or interested in it who maybe didn't really have it on their radar. Oh, yeah. wow. we would love it's to have
2: the have best job ever. And I have to say, since we're almost done, I know what it was like as a medic to call Life mm-hmm. and want everything to be perfect and mm-hmm. I don't have a line yet and feeling all that stress, but like there's no stress. Mm-hmm. When we come into the call, we're probably already on like plan B or C. Mm-hmm. Like we don't have it all organized either Mm -hmm. we're just part of the team and there's no pressure do the best you can yeah and then let us know how we can help you
0: yeah awesome absolutely awesome well that's all we got for you guys today we're going to leave it at that holly dan thanks for joining me and uh, we'll look forward to having you guys back on more episodes
2: thank you thanks